we saw real problems with real disparities in data here that we'd see a number from an ad network and we'd see numbers coming through to the website according to GA and other analytics platforms. But also when you look at the server data itself, some raw server logs, you just see something completely different. And the answer was you're getting a lot of invalid traffic isn't real. So here we are again, back for another installment of the cybersecurity sessions, our regular podcast talking about all things cybersecurity. With myself, Andy Stubb, CTO and co-founder of Netasea, the world's first fully agentless bot management product. This time, we're going to be talking about the thorny issue of fraud in the advertising space, particularly the role that bots play in this. This is obviously a subject that's close to my heart as I've spent the last few years developing technology specifically to identify bot activities against web platforms. So know as well as anyone how tricky this can be. Now, the ad fraud space is even more challenging with so many different parties involved, each with their own angle and tolerance of bot activities. I know when I first wrote about the subject a couple of years ago, I had to keep redrawing diagrams for myself to remember how it all worked, who was making money from where, who was losing money and why, in which area. Luckily, today we are joined by Stuart Boucher, CEO at Beacon, whose full-time job is stopping bots from committing ad fraud. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before we dig into the Ad Fraud Challenge, could you just quickly introduce yourselves for our listeners? Of course. So my name is Stuart Boucher, as Andy said. I am the CTO and data lead for Beacon. I've been involved in technology sector for a long time. My first jobs were working in missile tracking systems and nuclear power control systems, which were very data heavy, obviously. I've been involved at senior board level with entrepreneurial organizations since about 1995-96, run a few companies myself uh, with varying degrees of success. And I am now been involved with Beacon for about three and a half, four years in this role. I'm also a member of the Data and Marketing Association North Council, and I'm digital and project lead for the UK Police Memorial, which is a charity to honor officers killed and died in the line of duty. Wide range of duties there. Mm -hmm. I think before we go into any detail, I think it's probably worth starting at the very top. Who are the winners and who are the losers from ad fraud and how do they lose out? Okay, good question. The winners and losers from ad fraud are very much on the loser side is anyone who's running digital marketing on the internet, no matter what they're doing, because ad fraud is a term that encompasses a lot of different areas, fake clicks, fake impressions, programmatic ad fraud, but broadly speaking, it's any attempt to defraud digital advertising networks for financial gain, um, and scammers and criminal games frequently use bots and click farms to carry out and forward, but they're not the only methods. So broadly speaking, those who run these scams to run these ad bots and this ad fraud are the winners. It is arguable that ad networks themselves benefit from an increase in traffic across their platforms, which they tend to get paid for. And the losers 100% are those who are paying for those adverts. Okay. Cause I think what. One of the challenges in this is that the ad networks historically have been the people who determine which are fraud, and it's not necessarily in their interests, is it, to be too stringent on clamping down on fraud? Would that be in line with your experience? I mean, it's a tricky question you jump into straight away there. I have to be careful how I answer that one, I'm sure you do yourself. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that generously you can say that it would be a difficult problem for an ad network necessarily to be able to, to be 100% certain about the veracity of a particular click impression visit, whatever it might be, because they don't have access to a lot of the data that sort of organizations like Beacon and indeed yourselves do, where we've got a lot of server side, we've got a lot of, you know, what's going on on a website, you can track and look at 
distractions and behavioral metrics and all that kind of stuff, which is beyond where they are. They can only look at what's on their own platform. So you know, generously, you can say that it's a challenge for them to do that. And I think that perhaps what is something that many people would not contend with is they don't necessarily do it just some people want them to do. How was that for a political answer? <laughs> that was very, very nicely sat on the fence. Well, <laughs> um, we're being recorded in the pub. We'll talk differently. <laughs> Where I thought this got particularly interesting when I was looking into it was around the elements and the approaches that the ad fraud people took to build reputation up because obviously the value of a digital ad is significantly higher based on the individual and the likelihood of converting. Could you just talk us through the level of sophistication of the bottom operators and some of the techniques that they use to be able to create something very, very valuable? Yeah. So a bot is just, a, yeah. and as many of our listeners will know, a bot is a bit of software that's just programmed to do a job and it's been directed to do a particular kind of job. And a botnet is just a whole collection of those. Now you can run a bot anywhere. And what a lot of bot farm owners will do is that they, they would compromise people's machines. So there'd be a whole sort of viral payloads that would basically install bots on as many different machines as they could do. And then there'd be some kind of controlling mechanism by which you tell them to do something and there might be a TDOS service or whatever it might be. More recently, the advent of, of mass cloud computing has made it substantially easier for people to purchase cloud servers anywhere and run their bot networks in a more legitimate looking fashion. You don't have to worry about compromising someone's computer. You don't have to worry about downloading something and you breaking it. So bots tend to run all cloud computers now. They have become a lot more sophisticated because they're trying to look human. That's fundamentally the whole point about it. Uh, many people make aware of an online service called Fiverr. Uh, for $5 or $10 or $50, you can get a certain number of likes on a post or a certain number of followers on a Facebook page. So you can spend money to look like whatever you're doing is more popular. And I think a lot of marketeers have used those kind of services, particularly before they understood what they really were, which was basically, they're clearly not humans. They're bots that are being sold for money. So ad networks, they're not fools. They don't want to have bots running on the network. It's certainly not ostentatiously anyway. And so these things can't obviously look like a bit of software. So how do you turn something that's obviously a bit of software into something that looks human? And a degree of the problem we face now is because of the way the whole digital marketing system works, which is that it was very reliant and still is to a certain extent on third-party cookies and tracking people across their entire internet journey so that you have an understanding about their buying intent, about what it is that they want to do and what it is they might be buying in the near future so that you can market them more effectively. And as a side effect of that, you can use that third-party cookie ecosystem to build up something that looks like it's human because of the way it behaves. So what do humans do on social media networks, for example? Well, you know, they engage with posts or, or, or articles. They view and click on adverts. Obviously, they don't do any of these things. They don't realize they don't have hands. But the point is that they look real. They do the real things. And so what's happening here in the whole world of ad fraud is that bots are engaging with adverts primarily to look human. Now, what's interesting, I think, is the way that the industry itself has really kind of got ahead of regulation in terms of moving away from third-party cookies because real people have suddenly realized, hang on a second, what's going on with my data here? Why are people making money out of it? Why does someone know so much about me? But actually, if you look at the alternatives for third-party cookies, which are all about it, What's your intent? What are you going to buy? How do I market you more effectively? They had the same problems built in, which is that they're gameable by a sophisticated bit of software that behaves in certain kinds of ways to make it look, look, look human. 
So it doesn't solve that problem really. Now, I think that was one of the really interesting things I found when looking into this, the amount of effort that the bot operators would put in to building the effective persona of a particular type of customer. And they would do this over a number of months or even years mm -hmm. to build that history of someone who has background, visited the right sites at the right time of year to populate that with the right level of interest so that they can then have something that is the particular target market on high value clicks. And like you say, that can include visiting lower value sites and actually delivering some value to less popular sites and less well-visited sites can actually benefit from this in a certain way because they have visitors that are visiting them just so that they can build up that reputation. Um, there are certain sectors where that's extremely rife. So without naming any names at all, the job services industry is rife with bots because people go online and look for a job. And there's a lot of particularly smaller players who buy traffic from each other and they will list jobs that are elsewhere, that scrape jobs from somewhere and list them on themselves. And then they basically get some kind of affiliate referral for, for a click through. And they're really dependent on having high numbers of visitors to their websites so that they look valuable and so that they rank better. The trouble with that is that you can put in the time and effort to build a really good quality site with great quality content, or you can shortcut it and you can buy traffic. And the trouble with a lot of bought traffic is that there's no way to validate where it's come from, the source of it, whether it's really human. And cynically, you might argue that some of these sites aren't that bothered about whether it's human or not than me looking at the traffic levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's definitely was my kind of experience that actually it was a way for them to drive sufficient traffic, which actually then pushed them higher up and drove more legitimate traffic to them. And it was a shortcut way of getting to quality. Bot attacks are becoming more frequent, more time-consuming to stop, and cause untold damage to your brand. Thankfully, Netasea Agentless Bot Management detects up to six times more threats and stops bots automatically. Block more bad bots. Go to netasea.com. It's, it's like when you used to, you know, I mean, 10 years ago when you first set up a Twitter account, almost one of the first things you do, and I remember marketeers recommending it, you would just go and buy 500 or 1,000 followers. Just because you then looked like you were a bit more popular and therefore people were right to follow you, there's almost nothing worse than going and looking at a Twitter account and going, oh, that's quite interesting. And they've got three followers and you go, yeah, okay, I don't think so. And so there is that degree of credibility, which I suppose is an intrinsic human issue that we're not going to solve here today, but it's the same kind of principle. Okay. So you were mentioning before that there's a move within the industry away from using third-party cookies. What sort of techniques are they using instead of uh, third-party cookies? Uh, well, I mean, first party, really, generally. Uh, but this isn't exactly my area of expertise, but there's a number of attempts for the larger networks to control the data more. So, for example, if you're logged into Google, on my, so I've got, you know, I'm running on, I think, Edge here, right, because of my browser, and top right is a little picture of me because, you know, I'm logged into Google. So, so it knows I'm logged into Google all times. And so, therefore, that is gaining first-party data. So, in other words, it's not third-party cookies, it's their own known data about what sites I'm looking at. And so, there's, the larger networks are going that way. And what's, I think, potentially very dangerous about that, it's interesting technically, is that third-party cookies were... In principle, a good idea is just that they were abused and manipulated by those in the industry. And everyone got involved with that to a greater or less extent whether they knew or not. This is a cynical attempt to power grab rather than say, actually, we could make those things work in the way they were supposed to work, where there's genuine protection for people. It's not very hard. 
you know, there's so many cookie notices now, it's not very hard to say we could keep using Dave Carly cookies and just allow a user to decide whether or not you want a particular site to, to know about you. It's easy. It's just that it wasn't done. But what's happening is the big networks are now going, okay, well, hang on a second here. We can create these war gardens of our own data. And then what happens is smaller players have to buy from them. Yeah. So it makes it even more difficult to have good oversight. And for players such as ourselves, it makes it harder for us to do our job, I think. But the, the problem with bots isn't going to go away. No, it's also more insidious to users as well, because that data is being captured by them using what they think is a legitimate search engine for mm -hmm. other purposes than that. They're gathering a lot more data around what they're searching for. Well, it's, it's not just the search, is it? It's, it's everything you do on the internet. So, I mean, recommendation, if you want people not to know what you're looking at, then use Incognito, because yeah. you know there's good safety security around that. There's lawsuits going through in the US at the moment early days, but I think the initial judgment, I can't remember though, but the initial documentation is released by the judge against Google, you may well be aware of this, which is talking around seven projects they had. So they, there were two particular, I remember a project Jedi Blue and project Jedi was effectively the attempt to create this user data as a ward garden without telling users what they're doing, which obviously is, as you say, insidious, but the Jedi Blue, perhaps even more worrying, is allegedly an attempt for Google to prioritize their own and Facebook's traffic within the programmatic advertising ecosystem. So in other words, to give them an advantage over smaller players. So it's, a, it's an abusive position. I mean, I realize this is alleged and it's going to take many years to play out and who knows where it will go, but you can, you can see the concerns. The thing with third party cookies is lots of people have access to this data. The replacement mechanisms are very few organizations have access to properly raw data and you don't know what it is. Yes. I think it will be very interesting to see where that goes. We've seen such a clamp down on privacy restrictions being put into browsers. It will be interesting to see where that goes and, and also how advertisers react to that, because as you say, there's a very large amount of money behind the advertising industry obviously keeps a large amount of content on the website is advertising driven. It, it, I understand it's difficult because people would use the internet and they don't want to pay for stuff. I mean, you pay for your internet connection, but they don't want to pay for the content they get generally. And there is that kind of disconnect in people's minds between saying, well, actually no one understands if you can't see the mark, you're the mark. But I think marketing's traditionally never been very good at transparency, never been very good at openness. Very famous comedian, Bill Hicks, who you may well be aware of, was, was very scathing about marketing. And he, he makes some good points, which is that marketing is potentially a pernicious evil, but it clearly isn't because it serves purpose. You know, it makes you aware of things, makes you aware of things you didn't necessarily know about, you might want to know about, but it's because the way that it deals with its product, that is the people who it's selling to, it's not open to them. It's a very interesting subject around targeted advertising anyway, in that theoretically it is much better for you because you will see things that are relevant to you and should be driven by the things that you have chosen that are relevant that you want to buy. Mm -hmm. But actually it isn't like that, you know, it is driven by people who then know far too much about you that you haven't explicitly given them permission. So I think, you know, there was a right balance. To it's get. also flawed because I mean, how many times have you been followed around the internet by ads for a hotel you just booked or a product you just bought? Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's flawed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, it's built on imperfect data. You know, you're followed by adverts for something you looked at that you've decided that you never come to look at again. So I think we should dive into getting your opinion on what people can do about it. If you're running a site with advertising on it, what level of protection should you be doing and what, what steps can you take to stop these bots from 
taking your real viewers from seeing real adverts on your site? I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting one because you have to be very careful not to say, just say, use us. But the reason that Beacon came about is because I was running a digital agency, Leeds UK, where I'm based. And, and we saw real problems with real disparities in data. You know, we'd see a number from an ad network and we'd see numbers coming through to the website, according to GA and other analytics platforms. But also when you look at the server data itself, some raw server logs, you just see something completely different. And the answer was, you're getting a lot of inverted traffic isn't real. And so I mentioned earlier on that uh, I'm a member of the North Council for the Digital Marketing Association, the DMA, and we're carrying out a project on artificial engagement. And actually there's a resource that I, I'll have to, happy to share on their website, which talks about that. But one of the things is by not burying your head in the sand, so digital marketing, not burying your head in the sand is key. I think a lot of marketers understand that programmatic marketing is absolutely right for forward. And despite some very good solutions out there, it still is. You just have to do the best you can. But I think a lot of marketers also don't really think of paid search as being particularly problematical, but actually they are. You know, we see numbers of between 20 and 40% of budget wasted on bots, right? By unprotected clients, which is a huge number. If you're spending, you know, half a million pounds a month, you know, if it's, you spend 10,000 pounds a month, it's, you know, 20 to 40%, it's still a lot of money because it's relative to your budget. So asking questions like what percentage of my traffic is fake on my digital media campaigns and, and who in an organization is responsible for monitoring this and preventing it, taking those initial steps to say, okay, there is a problem and actually what do I place to understand the scope of the problem is very, very useful as a starting point. Uh, and then you can ask questions internally. You can ask questions of a digital marketing agency and ask them the questions about, do they monitor? for fraudulent traffic, what do they do about it? What do they mean by terminologies like engagement? How do they measure that kind of thing? And how do they have numbers around different channels, different campaigns, different geographies around bot engagement and what do they do to prevent it? So just, just by asking those questions, puts your organizations into a completely different mindset whereby they're not going, oh, well, they're probably this problem and oh, it's massive and oh, we can't even think about it too. Okay, well, break it down here, what do we do? You know, ultimately, unless you're a very tech organization who happens to be blessed with some good data scientists and people who understand this problem, you're going to end up engaging with a third party specialist such as Beacon, because this is a complicated technical process to detect bots. And I know full well that you're very aware of that. You know, you, there's so many indicators that you're looking at, you know, behavioral metrics around mouse movements and timing and edge touch points, you know, a whole heap of things. And it's, it's complicated and there's a, it has to be a good level of domain knowledge to be able to do anything about it, but just being aware is a good start. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think the, the thing is when you look into how complex a solution you need from this is to think about how the level of sophistication and expertise that is going into the people who are running these bots. This is not people with a simple bit of software, just trying things out. This is a multi-billion dollar industry with big development teams on this full-time with technical experts. So it's not something you can easily counter without bringing some sort of expertise in, in understanding what they're trying to do and also how you can respond. I mean, it's also about a return on investment, I suppose, in terms of like, and there is diminishing law. I mean, what, what you guys do is obviously about protecting actual data. You know, you're protecting your websites, mobile apps, and APIs from, you know, from scraping, from data stealing, all that kind of stuff. So with the beacon, what we're doing is we're stopping our, our customers from wasting their budget on bots, but no data is actually stolen. I mean, money's stolen. And that's one thing. And I suppose the point is that we generally say to our, to our clients when we, when we engage them at first, you're not going to get rid of this box, but if you can reduce it by 50% or, you know, by 80%, then that's a huge return on investment. And so it's like, where's your level of acceptance? So for example, we have some clients who 
actually spent some of their marketing budget deliberately drawing bots in so that we could detect them, build them into an audience, and then use that as a lookalike audience to prevent bots from engaging them. Now, that they were hugely invested in this, and that's because their owner was you know, a real data geek, and a lot of people were all kind of risk averse. But actually, as a result of that, they've taken their bot level down from over 40%, I think 45, 46%, when we start engaging down to sort of seven or 8%. Yeah. Even with that level of engagement, they can't take it completely to nothing, but I'll tell you what, that's huge for I mean, that's a massive improvement. It's not just the, obviously the wasted money associated with that bot, it's that that bot has taken the spot of a real customer yep. on your site. So every, every bot is costing you money, but then it's also costing you customers. So yep. the more you can get rid of those, the more real customers. Well, but one yeah. final thing, if I may, you're right. Opportunity cost, effectively, is what you're talking about there. I mean, you can't have the opportunity to spend that money on someone real who might buy something from you or whatever it is you want them to do. But also, it pollutes the data stack in a way that you're likely to make decisions based upon traffic that's never good to convert for you. And so you might make content decisions, you know, user flow decisions, all kinds of stuff. And again, that's something that's very important to marketeers, that they need to have good data to make good decisions about what they do next. And that is probably a bit. I couldn't agree more. We've engaged with a number of customers who've ended up making decisions that have optimized their sites for bots, which is clearly not where they want to go. No, probably not. <laughs> yeah. Unless they're always in the job sector. <laughs> this seems like a good point. I think we're just about out of time. So thank you very much again, Stuart, for joining us today. That's been absolutely fascinating. Um, Pleasure. Subject close to my heart and one of the more complex areas of, of the whole bot management infrastructure. So. Thank you very much, Stuart. That was a really interesting conversation. So thank you. And thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in and listening in today. If you are interested in giving us any feedback or reviews, please do that to our Twitter account, at CyberSecPod, or you can email podcast at netasia.com. Till then, thank you very much, and tune in again for our next episode of the Cybersecurity Sessions. 